America, welcome to the program. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and our special contributing analyst, Lamont Banks. How's everyone doing tonight? Pretty good. Doing good, doing Sam. Doing good. How are you doing? All right. How's everybody dealing with that time change? Struggling just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I'm having just, a good time. Just a little bit. <laughs> and also joining us in the studio is uh, attorney Gwendolyn Solomon. And Attorney Gwendolyn Solomon is the appellate attorney for IRP6. And so, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about some things that are very important uh, tonight. And, you know, one of the things, uh, before we get too far, Lisa, let's go on and do the uh, disclaimer. Yes, we want to remind everyone that we are not attorneys and it just cause Coast to Coast does not provide legal advice. You want to contact your personal legal advisor for your legal needs. And also, the opinions expressed by callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or a just cause coast to coast. And as always, thank you for tuning in and choosing to spend time with us this evening. So this evening, uh, one of the topics we're going to be talking about is uh, misidentification resulting in wrongful convictions. And uh, we're also going to tie in the IRP6 case and how that fits in. Joining us to talk about that a little bit later on in the program will be Laura O'Sullivan, as well as Kay Lincoln. Now, Kay is the daughter of Rodney Lincoln, and Rodney uh, has been incarcerated since 1982, and uh, basically under a, uh, as a result of a murder conviction, but DNA evidence proves that he did not do it. And so they are fighting tooth and nail to try and get Rodney released, and so, you know, we're going to have them on a little bit later to talk about that. Uh, we want to also uh, remind folks to Keep the IRP6 uh, in your prayers. Uh, that's David Banks, Dave Zapolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, Demetrius Harper, and Gary Walker. And so uh, uh, as we move forward, uh, also, if you'd like to follow us along with anything that we're talking about regarding the IRP6 case, you can do that by going to freetheirp6.org, freetheirp6.org. Now, for our uh, regular listeners, you'll know that that tune and that sound means that we have breaking news. And uh, the breaking news that we have this evening, and, and you know, it's a, it's a subject that we're going to talk about uh, regarding, basically, attorney integrity. And it's something that's very, very close to the IRP6 case and the IRP, uh, families of the IRP6 uh, in their dealings with one of the former attorneys, and uh, we're, we want to hear from you as well, our listeners. We want to hear from you on this subject as we dive into it. So the attorney that we're talking about is attorney Mark Garagos. And, and you know, Mark Garagos is a renowned, uh, his name is known everywhere as far as, uh, as, far as uh, litigation and so forth. He's been involved in some major cases. Uh, and I guess one of the most noted ones was Michael Jackson, uh, as well as Scott Peterson. So we're going to talk uh, about all of that. But more importantly, uh, like I said, it, it, it's, it pertains to how Mr. Garagos dealt with the IRP-6 
and their families in the sense that, and we've talked about it uh, before on the program, that he received $100,000 in retainers uh, to represent a just cause in the, uh, in the civil lawsuit that we had against Darlene Martinez for the uh, transcript that Judge Arguello would not turn over to the IRP-6 regarding that sidebar conference where she violated their Fifth Amendment rights. Then he also joined in on the, uh, the, uh, the criminal side where the IRP-6 were seeking to get bond pending appeal and working on that side of the case. And again, we have Attorney Gwendolyn Solomon here uh, in the studios with us to chime in on this subject. Now, one of the things that brought this up is that a just cause uh, filed several weeks ago filed a complaint with the California Bar Association against Garagos regarding this situation as far as his communication with uh, a just cause, his communication with the IRP-6, uh, the, the filing of motions, and so forth. So we received a letter from the California, the State Bar of California, and it's basically stating that uh, they do not find any grounds for a complaint. Do you guys believe that? I can't believe that. Um, just want to say um, I was in review. And that, that's Gwendolyn Solomon Sorry. talking for our listeners. Go ahead, go ahead, Ms. Yes, Solomon. Yes, this is Gwendolyn Solomon, the attorney for uh, the defendants, the six RP6. Um, I was appalled when I read the review from the uh, California Bar where they denied um, being able to review this complaint on the basis that they said that there was an ad- um, there was, they believe, adequate communications by Mr. Garrigosen. I'm I'm just amazed at that because there were several emails that were communicated to Mr. Garagos to try to get him to assist us in this case um, on the civil matter and in a criminal case, and he failed to do so, um, respond. And when he did respond, there was a lack of substance in his response. Basically, Mr. Garagos is a, was a dictator, and he felt like because he was has been an attorney for over 30 years that he could dictate to um go ahead and finish your thought okay i'm sorry that he could dictate to an attorney uh, or others what needed to be done without having an open mind to be able to listen to others and me being a young attorney um i might not have had all the experience that i needed but i the cases that i have handled i was able to you know explain to him and inform him of how, you know, pleading should be filed immediately, responses should be answered, how you're supposed to have integrity with the client. And I think he was really irritated because I did feel like he was incompetent. Um, I did call him that. And, and before you go any further, and let, let's not get too far into the end of the story, but let, let's kind of take it, uh, let's take it a step at a time. So you, you commented about the fact that, uh, you know, an attorney that has over 30 years experience and so forth. Now, we've pulled a clip. From, and, and what we want to show for our listeners is the is how Mr. Gary goes when he first got engaged in this case, there was uh, one attitude. And then as we progressed on and on, and this gets into where the lack of communication comes in, that it, it, it was like a total, you know, 180 degree uh, turn. It was like the total opposite direction. And so let's go to clip number one and, and give our listeners an idea of, what was you know what was going on in the mind of Mr. Garagos when he first got engaged? Uh, first of all, very simple question. Um, you have represented the likes of Michael Jackson. You have represented Winona Ryder, Gary Condit. Why the IRP six? Well, I was fascinated by the issue. I uh, Gwendolyn and Sam came to me and presented it, laid it out, and 
I, uh, at this stage of my career, I kind of uh, am fortunate enough to be able to pick and choose which cases I'll take. And I was, uh, I, at first, I was somewhat aghast and didn't really believe that uh, the way they had portrayed it to me that it actually had occurred. And then as we kind of dug into it and drilled down in it, um, the the very issue that Gwendolyn was just talking to you about um, actually occurred, and the transcript mysteriously has disappeared. How how uh, often do do court tra- federal court transcripts mysteriously disappear? Thirty one years is the first time I've ever encountered a federal <laughs> court transcript disappearing, and it's not just you know randomly any transcript. It's the single biggest issue in this case. So that was uh, Mark Garagos on the Wilmer Leon uh, radio program, and he was talking about the IRP-6. Now, uh, Ms. Solomon, you were talking about how, you know, and like he said, in 31 years of practice, uh, you know, something like this has never uh, happened. And, you know, you, you kind of got a sense of enthusiasm, if you will, you know, when you see an injustice. But, you know, what did you see when it, when it got down to the brass tacks and started actually, you know, pulling together some of the some of the motions and stuff like that? Well, um, once I reviewed the transcripts and um, also I was uh, personally at some of the hearings uh, of the trial that took place. So I was there the day that actually the portion of the transcript was requested by the IRP6. I was not representing them at the time. They did very well to represent themselves. But I was uh, in the courtroom that day, and there was a, a bench conference that was recorded. And when they, when the de- defendants requested a copy of the bench conference, for some reason, um, the court reporter Darlene Martinez uh, failed to provide that to them. She um, later, as I requested it on several occasions, she said that the um, unedited version of the transcript was available, but she refused to give it to me, which I was didn't understand that how she had discretion as a court reporter to refuse to release uh trial court proceedings that pertain to the defendants that they ha- that they had every uh legal right to and um then also I also contacted um um I also contacted her supervisor Charlotte Horde Charlotte Horde explained to me also that the transcript was available at a cost. I believe she must have felt that um, the appellate, that the defendants were not able to afford the cost. And then um, when they dis- when they appeared with the in- with the um, the funds to purchase the transcript, then she it was still was not released to me. Um, finally, um, the judge Arguello uh, reprimanded me in the courtroom and said that she felt that I was hassling um, the staff just to request a copy of a legal transcript that should have been provided to the defendants, and she told me I had to go to the clerk's office. And so when I did that, I talked to Ed Butler, which was at the time the clerk of the court, and he informed me via telephone. I asked him where if I could be provided the transcript, and then he explained himself to me and told me that Mrs. Horde and Darlene Martinez, the court reporter, told him that to tell me that the transcript was destroyed. Now, uh, Ms. Solomon, as far as uh, w- with the relationship with uh, Garagos, mm-hmm. and, and, and once he got engaged in the situation, how, how was the communication with, with you and him? And, and uh, I, I mean, 
I can speak, and, uh, and Cliff can speak also from the uh, relationship of a just cause. What did you feel as though, uh, what your relationship with Garagos, and, and how did you feel that that, that, that developed? And, you know, from at the very beginning, and then and then we'll go from there. Okay, well, in the beginning, um, of course, I'm a, new, I'm a new lawyer, so I was ecstatic that Mark Garagos, a well-renowned attorney, um, I was ecstatic that I would be able to work with him, and I felt that he would be a mentor for me at the time. So, it was, you know, in the beginning, I felt it was a good relationship. But once um, it, once I started making suggestions, which I thought were reasonable suggestions as an attorney, would be able to deal with a client um, and how you're supposed to file pleadings and respond to different pleadings, all of a sudden he got irritable and started to become a dictator um, versus a, a teacher. And so um, that was the breakdown in relationship because I almost felt like it was a a, bru- a bruised person um, upset about, so, you know, a little, um, how you say, a novice um, trying to give you information when it should be some information that you would already ha- should have known over 30 years period. But he got irritated because I tried to direct him and I really wasn't trying to take charge. I was just working. We were working together. I felt as colleagues. Now, what about uh, as far as a strategy is concerned? What, was there a strategy? I was never informed of a strategy. We, that's where every conference call we were trying to get a strategy as to what what the client was paying for. Were they going to be able to be provided a strategy as to how we were going to conquer the civil case and how we were going to try to, um, you know, make pleadings to the court regarding the criminal case? So now, no strategy. You have an attorney who initially says that he is, you know, uh, had never seen anything like this in his 31 years of practice, and uh, he also stated that uh, that he knew that uh, based on the information that he had been provided, that the guys were actually the IRP six were engaged in legitimate business. And 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 what do you feel as far as I mean, did he was that just lip service or do you think that he you know, did he really do anything to help to establish the credibility of the IRP six? I I feel he did not. I feel he did not establish uh the credibility. He in actuality during the whole time span, I believe it was from September of two thousand thirteen through May of 2014, he only talked to the, his clients one time. As for, and when I'm saying clients, as far as I'm referring to the IRP six, right? And during that conversation, he was very offensive to them. He cursed them, and he also hung up the phone on them, and was upset when they were inquiring about issues and uh, requesting he file a motion for bond pending appeal. Um, which he was paid for to do that, and they and he got upset about it because they were asking him um, to fi- to get that filed as soon as possible, and he didn't even file it, and he had been paid, I believe, in approximately January, and it was never even filed. Um, they kept putting it off, putting it off until approximately after May, and he filed it, and then when he did file it, he exp- expressed to the defendants that, it was they were going to lose anyway. The pleading was not was not going to be granted. It was going to be denied, and they were going to remain in jail for the rest of the time of their sentence. Which I totally, when I found that out, I was really really upset because when I became a lawyer, I became a lawyer to help people, and you you don't take on a client telling them that you're going to do all this for them and get them all hyped up, and then you tell them you know, you curse them and tell them that you're not going to do something or you don't want to do something that they paid you for. 
And I, 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 as a new lawyer, I would have never, ever, even if, even after I felt that the client was guilty, I still would have never told my client that basically you're going to rot in jail. That's basically what he said in essence. Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the things, and, and even in this letter that we got from California Bar, you know, they say that they contacted Mr. Garagos, and he replied to some of the uh, allegations that we had made. And, you know, he's going to do what you would expect him to do. He's going to sidestep. He's going to tap dance. He's going to dance all around the issues. And he's he gonna is, lie. He's going to lie. Thank you. And, and so he, he is not going to address these issues. And so he's not going to pr- present the, the picture the way it really is. I mean, in, in this letter, he talks about, you know, uh, having uh, dozens, and I, that's with an S, dozens of conference calls hundreds of emails. Right. Yeah, the hundreds of emails came from a just no, cause. let's correct that. There weren't hundreds weren't of emails. Hundreds of there anything. weren't even hundreds of emails. But, I don't but know where ahead. he comes up with dozens of conference calls. The conference calls we had lasted for anywhere from one to five minutes. Absolutely. So you're not, there's no dozens of conference calls. And, and the fact of the matter is the conference call, the, the times, I went through the letters. Yeah. Uh, regarding this complaint and the times that uh, we said, OK, Garagos and company are supposed to be on the phone. Where are they? That was an email yeah, and e- an email this for which a- he charged us 15 exactly. minutes. for. Right. This is this is the time that we're supposed to have a conference call. You call up his uh, his assistant, Alice. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Mark is on a plane. How do you set up a schedule for us to have a conference call? And then you're suddenly on a plane. Then it goes from a plane to he's handling an emergency family matter. Then it goes from, and, and I'm talking about as we're trying to get, well, the conference call now has been postponed for an, for an hour while he's on the plane. Now it's been postponed for, for two more hours while he deals with an emergency situation. Then you find out that he's supposed to be on the phone with us. Oh, then you turn on CNN. Where is he at? He's up at a podium with Chris Brown. So it's, there is... When they came up and said, oh, he told them, and and you know what really, really ticked me off is that they just take his word like, oh, well, what Mark Arago says is true. And for them to say that he, you know, that uh, he contends his firm took time to explain their actions or decisions if there was a question or concern, that's just an outright lie. And what gets me is that they haven't done any research exactly. on what he did. It's like they just took his word for him. Now, we have all this stuff in email. We're saying – he postponed our conference call because there was a freaking football game going on. This is an email where yep. he's saying, it's a good game. I'm watching it. Give me 20 more minutes. You, you're talking about people spending time in Lives, prison, yeah. and you're saying, I'm watching a football game. Give me 20 more minutes. Oh, uh, hey, they're right in the middle of a good run. Give me another 20 minutes. And we're just sitting back waiting like, Alice, when is Mark getting on the phone? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Lamont. Go ahead. Well, the bizarre part to me is this, is that it shows you uh, that the state bar, excuse me, uh, it shows me that the state bar uh, is part of the corruption in the system as well. Absolutely. Because how do you have complaints from six defendants, how how that lawyer violated their rights, how he treated them, how he crossed, in my opinion, at least the ethical line of law, mm-hmm. uh, then how in the world do you, in return, come back and say, well, we heard Mr. Garagos, and that's sufficient enough? And also, I just wanted to add to that, Lamont, that I added a letter. I sent a letter in as the appellate attorney in support of the uh, the unprofessionalism and the conduct 
um, that Mr. Garagos um, did, and I was never contacted on my response or or what my um, what my suggestions, whatever into into what the violations that I felt that he had did as an attorney. I was never contacted, and I just find that amazing. Basically, it, it seemed like it was it was one sided. They basically just took everything that he stated and and allegedly put it in a response and say, and then stamp it and say we're closing the matter. And and I mean in reality, my point being is that uh, uh, you know just cause has been investigating as we mm-hmm. as we find out things are politically motivated in this country. That's correct. Down to their conviction, down to the appellate process. Now, honestly, this this makes one take pause and want to take a look at the at the individual state bars now. Yes, that's because true. now you have a situation whereas there's no confidence in the bar now that if well, you file a complaint, no, with they're going to stand with their they're, own. They're friends. Like, yeah, they're standing they with are him. friends. Yeah, it, that's I mean, right. it's unbelievable, and and that's something that just calls has to now uh, attack. And uh, 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 these people are presumed who 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 do these state bars answer to? Who is the who is the higher court or the authorities there that is, calls these there people? There isn't. I, I was looking at that earlier today, Lamont, and and basically that's an industry that is for all practical purposes self-regulated. That's wow. true. You know, which it, means it's not regulated at all. Exactly. So you know they 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 have lip service to the fact that if you have a complaint, we have a vehicle whereby you can file a grievance. But guess who you're going to file a grievance to? Your brotherhood. Yeah, your buddies. Now, what, Mr. Garagos, he has some title. What's his title? As far as you know, the presidents of the uh, Defense Attorneys of America. Okay. Or so National Defense Attorneys or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. So you, you can uh, kind of use your imagination oh, here. You don't have of, the imagination. Uh, of, of, the, <laughs> of the circles yeah. that he's in. And I guarantee you uh, some of those folks sit right on the state bar. And, and the – when you read this, uh, the response that he came back. Now, you mean they, at the, at the that bar? from the from the from the bar yeah. that came back about the complaint? Yeah, mm-hmm. they don't show. They don't say that his records reflect. They say he indicated. That's right. That exactly. records reflect. So they let him answer for himself. So it's like, but where is the proof of his dozens of conference calls, hundreds of emails, and numerous letters? Exactly. The the emails were coming from us saying. Hey, where are you at? That's right. When are you going to answer? We're looking for you to file this. We're looking for you to file that. The IRP6 is looking for some type of activity on their case. That's where the emails came from. And then then they say, which this just really gets you. Additionally, it's not clear that his communication was so deficient to warrant disciplinary, yep. disciplinary action. How do you make that say if he is not communicating with his client? So basically they're saying we make the call of when it's deficient enough to where to where we uh, to where it warrants disciplinary action. And Cliff, the sentence after that is even more uh, atrocious. I mean, it says now, you know, the bar uh, does not condone offensive and or unprofessional conduct. However, the state bar is not required to limit disciplinary or, or is required to limit disciplinary action to conduct that adversely affects the administration of justice as opposed to purely personal conduct and conduct occurring outside of the courtroom. Yeah. And so then, in other words, I can curse you out and I, clip you was on the phone. Right, exactly. I, mean, I was anything, the benefactor of it. Anything outside the courtroom, he can do that and the bar is not going to say and, – and, Obviously, Mark Garagos knows what the bar's response is going to be. He knows 
that he, with over 30 years being an attorney, he and the complaints that people have against him on the bar that we looked up, he knows what he can get away with. And the next sentence after that, after the excerpt you just read, Sam, is was really stupid because it says, accordingly, we are unable to pursue disciplinary action against Mr. Garrigals for the offensive and or professional conduct described in your complaint. So they're acknowledging so, it. So we find that, yes, exactly. there was offensive, unprofessional conduct, but we really can't go after him for that because it happened outside of court. So he, the thing is, okay, but if you never went to court, so basically they're saying if you didn't go to court, if everything that he did that was unprofessional, unethical, and offensive to you as a client, if he does it all outside of a courthouse, then there's nothing we're going to do against him. And, and, yep. and you know what, Cliff? It sounds like that sentence right there. It's almost like somebody picked up the phone, made a phone call, and said, Mark, really? Did you, did you really say this to this guy? Did you really say this to these clients? Did you really curse them out? Did you really do this? Did you really do He's like, yeah, man, you know, I, I just had a, uh, you know, a bad day that day. And, and so they are acknowledging the fact that it's almost like Judge Arguello's situation right. w- with them saying that Judge Arguello acknowledged that something happened at that sidebar, but she doesn't recall what it was. I mean, this this. Well, Go ahead, Lamont. Well, well here's the thing that, that's of concern is that uh, you got six defendants. Uh, the IRP six uh, incarcerated. What level of abuse do you have to go to for six men that are fighting for their freedom to have to release you because you are not doing your job? And that that that's something to me that is absolutely uh, amazing to me. And then not only that, Mr. Gergos has a pattern of abuse, not only with the IRP six. Uh, he was an attorney, I believe, for Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. Uh, my understanding, do the research, that uh, he wasn't uh, really a professional returning his phone calls. Uh, this is a character flaw in this man, apparently. Yeah. This is a habitual act of misconduct and behavior. But because a person is in the industry for 30 years, uh, they feel like they're untouchable. They are the attorneys for the celebrities, et cetera. Uh, they feel like they can do what they want to do. It, it's the bottom line is these families sacrificed and pulled together monies to 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 for him to do his job, and he failed to do that job. And I wanted to add to that. Um, they had stated in the uh, response here, the bar, that um, that they would that as long as the conduct was not adversely affected the administrative administration of justice. And I believe um, that Mr. Mark Mr. Gary goes did. Um, have an effect adversely in administrative administration of justice because he failed to file um, a pleading. He filed, he was supposed to file a uh, second amended complaint. He was informed that he would do that or he agreed to do that on January 10th. Um, and he didn't file that second amended complaint until February 23rd, um, which was way down the line. And anyone knows as an attorney that you want to timely file pleading so that they could be present before the court so that the judge can have full knowledge of everything that's going on and, and be able to make a complete decision. Because of his failing of filing that um, response, uh, second amendment complaint in a timely manner, I believe it did affect the administrative administration of justice because in the order that Judge Jackson sent down, he was irritated that he did not get a response back in a timely fashion from the plaintiffs. 
And so that to me, um, that was a a portion of that that should have been addressed. Also, he he, when he uh, scolded and reprimanded reprimanded the men, he did not want to file the motion uh, for bond pending appeal. He he told them he wanted to have an oral argument. It's all about Mr. Garagos. It was not about his client. And we, you know, expressed it. It doesn't matter. We can do an oral argument later. But right now we just want the pleading on the table before the court. And to me, he's not given 100 percent as an attorney telling them that I'm going to do it my way. I hired you. Do it what I request if I'm not asking for an unreasonable request. And and like Lamont was saying, you know, uh, with a an attorney that's been around for a while, uh, I can't imagine that that, uh, you know, folks would, you know, it's almost like folks would think that, well, you know, this is just an anomaly. You know, no one complains about about this guy or whatever. But, you know, our research team has found some some information over the years. And you mentioned uh, the Michael Jackson case. But uh, I think, Lisa, you you have a couple of items there. Yeah, we've got a couple of co- other other complaints and reviews that people had filed about Mark Garagos. We've got one that says he's good until something high profile comes along. Then your case will get no attention at all. And we have another one that says he had the worst experience with Mark Garagos. If you're not famous, do not hire him. He wouldn't do any good to your case. I agree. He'll postpone forever, and in the end, he'll tell you to let the guy do his time. And if you then ask, why did we hire you, or why did you take this case, he'll kick you out of his office. I wish someone can do anything to stop him from practicing law. That's just other people who have run into the same the same issue with this uh, so-called great attorney who's doing nothing for anyone. When Michael Jackson fired him, he fired him because he said he wanted somebody who was actually going to have his interest as the highest priority. Why are you an attorney if your client's interest is not your highest priority? What, right. what are you even doing practicing law? That's what were you paid for? That's right. What are you paying for? Yeah, and you're for? taking people's money. Why exactly. are you taking people's money if you're not going to do your job? Well, here's the problem. If, if you know, $100,000, I have to run you down to get on a conference call. Mm-hmm. I have to interrupt your football game. You have $100,000 of my money. Which might not be a lot of money to you, but to the IRP6 and their families, it, that's, that's money. a lot of money. That's money. Absolutely. Agreed. And so, uh, and then the other thing too, Lisa, when you said that uh, that that particular comment, uh, that particular uh, person made a comment about if if uh, he gets upset with you, he kick, kicks you out of his office, or cuss you out. I'm saying, yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you know where I was going with that. It's like if you're not in his in his literally in his office, you're virtually in this office. He's gonna curse you out. He'll cuss exactly. you out. Tell you he's not gonna hold your hand and all these things. Like, come and on. And as Attorney Solomon was saying earlier about the way he spoke to the IRPC. I've never heard in my life of an attorney telling their clients, well, you're going to spend, you're going to serve your time. Exactly. Are you representing them or are you not? Exactly. That's not representing them. No, it's not. So, Cliff, we have a caller. Yes, we have uh, Edward uh, is in is in queue. Uh, Ed, you have a question or comment about this uh, subject? Uh, are you talking to me, Ed Bronson? Yes, yes, sir. You're on the air. Well, uh, I was told you might want to ask me some questions about my dealings with uh, Mr. Garagas. Okay, well, uh, we just want to get your uh, your your take. Uh, give us a little bit of background on um, on on what happened with your situation, your experience with uh, with Mr. Garagos, and then some of your take on uh, on what the outcome of that was. 
Well, I'm a so-called uh, expert uh, in the area in which I work, which is things like uh, change of venue in a very high publicity case. Uh, I've probably done more of those than anybody in the country. Oklahoma City bombing. I just finished up the Boston Marathon bombing case uh, and many, many others. And uh, I was... Uh, talked to Mr. Gerrigus about doing the Peterson case, the Scott Peterson case, which mm-hmm. at the time was the highest profile case in the country and had a very bad experience with him. Okay, and so what did that experience entail? Well, when the case happened, you all remember that uh, uh, Scott Peterson, who ended up uh, getting the death penalty, when Mr. Gerges uh, defended him. Well, the case was originally assigned to the local public uh, defender. And uh, when that happened, the public defender, who knew of me and about me, called me and asked me to do the case, which I agreed to do. Then uh, that Mr. Peterson, his family, then came up with the money to hire uh, Mr. Garagas, understandable because he was certainly a very uh, and is a very famous attorney who's taken on some high profile cases. So the guy who'd hired me was no longer on the case, and Mr. Garagas took it. So I was off, and that was that was fine. I have way more cases than I can handle, and <laughs> and and I wouldn't call him to ask him if he wanted me to continue, because I just don't think it's appropriate to solicit business. Mm-hmm. So the a national network uh, that was covering the case, uh, national television, after a few weeks, they called me and asked me to be their on-air commentator. And that sounded like a real kick. I've done hundreds of huge cases but I've never done anything like be an on-air commentator. So that sounded like something interesting, but I was a little concerned because I had been involved in the case, and I didn't want to uh, have what's called a conflict of interest where uh, there might be some ethical questions. So I asked the network who called me if they'd give me some time, and I called some of the graybeards and, uh, the legal profession here in California, and uh, they assured me that uh, there wasn't any problem. I didn't know anything about the case other than what uh, everybody else read in the newspapers or saw on television, and uh, they said it was okay, and the fellow that I talked to, very well-respected uh, attorney, uh, but he suggested that I call Garagas just to tell him what I was going to do so there wouldn't be any problems. So I did call him. And even though several weeks had gone by, it turned out that Garagos hadn't hired anybody. And I'm sort of the major guy that does this stuff. So he really got after me to take the case. And I didn't want to do it, mainly because I couldn't, obviously couldn't do both, uh, both work for Garagos on the case and also uh, do the the television commentary. So... uh, he finally he hadn't done anything, so I finally agreed to do it. And then I didn't hear from Garagus 
didn't expect to because it was such a big case and often months, sometimes years go by before the case comes up for trial. And uh, then I got a fax from him that sent me a proposal that the prosecution had given him about how to do the survey in the case. And and I thought it would really help Garagas. In fact, I actually told him that not only should he not oppose it, he should offer to pay for it because it was such a dumb idea by the prosecution. And uh, Garagas didn't like that, and I didn't hear from him for a while. And then uh, he sent me the same proposal all over again, trying to get me to change my mind, I guess. And I sent back essentially the same reply. And then I didn't hear. Months went by. Uh, I was more than busy, and uh, but I called back the network and told them that I couldn't be their commentator since I'd be doing the case. And so I Bronson, also turned... Yes. Mr. Bronson, let, let me jump in there real quick. Uh, this is sure. Sam. Uh, so, uh, in, in essence, uh, you have a situation where you had an opportunity to earn earn revenue doing a television gig and then also to do your consulting uh, side over here on the side with, with Garagos. Uh, the the end, end result... Uh, and, and looking at some of the profile uh, regarding this, this, this case or this story, if you will, it looks like you didn't get paid. And, and so is that I didn't really care about the, the money that much. I'm an old guy, and my house is paid for, and I wasn't so much worried. But I was very concerned that he hadn't had the ordinary decency just to tell me that he'd hired somebody else. He didn't like my response. That was so certainly you, his. You had you had an arrangement whereby you expected to get paid for services, and uh, and and it didn't happen. And it didn't happen. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so I brought you, a small claims court case against him. Yeah. And, and, and how did that turn? How did that turn out? Did did uh, did the court uh, rule favorably for you, or, or how well, did it turn out? The first time I won, the court heard my story. Uh, Garagas didn't come, but he sent somebody from his office there. And, and he made an offer to settle with you, right? No, 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 no. He never oh, he agreed. Oh, no. He just turned it down. And then he, he came in and asked for a delay. So he sent some people up again the second time. They had to fly up from Los Angeles, stay in a motel overnight, uh, rent a car, drive up to where I live in Chico, and... Uh, so I figured it was beginning to cost him almost as much as if he'd paid me. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, the, so the second time, he got a delay. So that meant two trips, sending up people. And he got an, another delay. And the third time, which meant all three of them had to fly up, his uh, other lawyer and uh, the paralegal in the office, all three of them came. Garagas presented the case himself. And, you know, I'm used to people who, you know, they don't actually lie, but, you know, they sort of tell their version of the facts, right. and that can right. happen. But Garagas so actually Garagas totally lied about what happened. I mean, he, it wasn't even close. It was just 180 degrees out of, out of character. Yeah. Well, the and problem so was – go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, one of the things we wanted to bring out in this, and, and 
And if you don't mind, I don't know if you if you got a little time to hang out with us a little bit, and, and we might want to just come back to you with a couple of other questions a little bit later. But in this particular situation, uh, Mr. Garagos represented himself in that case uh, in the, in the second part of it. And did you did you get paid even after that? No. So because, so that's the thing that we're because trying I'm to sort of a well-known person here in my community. I work yeah. with the judges. I do a lot of things uh, that they know me. And I didn't want to create a situation where it looked like the judges were sort of favoring the hometown guy. I'm a local right. professor right. and expert in all kinds of things. So I kind of suggested that it didn't happen quite the way, but I didn't really say that Garagas had plain out lied about uh, what had happened and but and did, the judge did, did, and, did he the, oh Garagas had he totally misrepresented what uh, what our conversation had been he denied yeah. hiring me it, so mr bronson let, let let me cut in on you because we got to go to another segment of sure. the program real quick but uh again we might want to come back to you and ask you a couple of questions but we need to jump to another segment and uh so we appreciate you joining us and sharing, you know, your situation that happened uh, during the Scott Peterson case. Because what we're trying to show here is, you know, on a just cause coast to coast, yeah, we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. But we also, you know, one of the things we have to do is expose uh, injustice in any form. And so when you have someone out there that has this type of uh, reputation and, uh, and, and this type of uh, clout, if you will, in the, in the market, uh, you know, especially when you've re- been on the receiving end of this kind of injustice, we have to uh, expose it. Talk, news, politics, and inspiration. All right, Cliff, let's go to our next segment. And uh, I think we have Laura O'Sullivan on the line. And, uh, Laura, we appreciate you joining us. We understand you have a family uh emergency situation and for you to be able to break away from that uh we tried to get to you as quickly as we could and we understand your time is short welcome to the program how are you doing this evening considering the circumstances thank you very much thank you for having me i'm doing fine yeah and again we really appreciate you you know in this time that you that you're going through to to break away and be with us so laura uh, well I, I would just say that right you know i represent rodney lincoln and um you know uh it's really important to me that his case uh, people are aware of it, and so absolutely, I, I wanted to take this time to be able to talk to you about it. Awesome, awesome. So now in Rodney's situation, Rodney was convicted in what 1982, and uh, uh, he, he was conv- the the uh, offense that for which he was convicted occurred in 1982. He was actually convicted in 1983. Okay, and but mm-hmm. now there is new evidence. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yes. Uh, So um, I am with the Midwest Innocence Project, and uh, we began looking into Rodney's case several years ago. And basically, we uh, tested some biological evidence um, that was collected at the scene. We did DNA testing on that evidence, evidence that um, was uh, presented to the jurors at the trial they they thought that their this hair that was found at the crime scene uh, microscopically matched uh, Rodney Lincoln. We in fact have DNA tested that item, and it is not 
him, nor is any of the other items that we tested, which we tested over a dozen items from the crime scene. And uh, Rodney Lincoln is not the perpetrator of these crimes, and we have um, proven that by DNA evidence. We are now on appeal, hoping that the court will uh, grant him release. Now, how was he originally... How, how did he originally get get tagged with this uh, with this this sure. uh, crime? Yeah, you know, he was. Um, this was back in the early 1980s, so this was before DNA technology was around, and uh, this was a really um, brutal crime that occurred in the community. There was a lot of pressure to solve this case, and so the police were really kind of. And they were trying to do everything they could to solve the case. The only um, living witnesses were seven and four years old. So there were little children who actually were victims of the crime as well and had to be taken to the hospital and undergo several operations. So they were desperately trying to attempt to get some sort of eyewitness identification. Um, They showed the, the children about 50 different photos, five different lineups. They just kept trying and trying and trying. And finally, the children in the um, sixth, I believe it was the sixth attempt to get them to identify somebody, um, one of the children pointed to a photo of Rodney Lincoln. They then um, did microscopic comparison where they looked through a microscope and looked at the hair that was collected and looked at a hair sample um, from Mr. Lincoln and said they match. Um, so that's what the jurors heard. And so the jurors are, are thinking we have this expert telling us that this hair matches and we have this very young child pointing to uh, a photo of Mr. Lincoln saying he's the guy who did this. Um you know, we now have proven that that hair that the jurors were told matched Mr. Lincoln and that that hair was from the perpetrator. We have proven that that hair is not Mr. Lincoln. It is an unidentified profile of a person that we believe is the perpetrator of the crime. And it, it's not Mr. Lincoln. And so, so, go ahead, Lisa. I'm sorry. So I'm, let me just make sure I'm clear on this. This man was convicted based on a hair? He was convicted based on a hair and a little young child who pointed to a, uh, who was basically presented with a very suggestive lineup um, and, uh, you know, who on the fifth or time that she's kind of carted into a room and asked to look at photos and this time instead of, you know, they, they showed her, first ID was 10 photos. Um, and that was the day after she this crime occurred while she's in intensive care in the hospital. Um, then they come back a couple days later, show her 11 photos. She doesn't ID anybody. They come back a few days later, show her 13 photos. She doesn't ID anybody. They come back and back and back. And so this just kept and happening this and seven, happening this and happening. seven-year-old girl? Yes, a little seven-year-old girl. And they're coming to show her these photos while she's in the intensive care unit of the hospital. The first few times she's on um, medication because she's on pain medication. 
they actually have to stop one of the interviews because she's crying so hard that they have to administer more pain medication and get her more, you know, calmed down. I mean, it's, um, so it's, that is, it's well, really that is, a horrible story about that this little child had to go through. It's it's really, I mean, it's horrible. She was a victim of a very brutal crime, and then, you know, I mean, and then to be kind of have these have these photos and the keep coming back and coming back and coming back. And Laura, and this I have is a- the kind of, I mean, mistaken eyewitness identification is so frequent in in these DNA exonerations. Seventy two percent of all DNA exonerations involve somebody who identifies somebody else and they're later proved to have been mistaken about it. So it's a, it's Laura, a really problem, big problem, yes. Laura, I'm sorry, this is Gwendolyn Solomon. I have a question because I know this was a DNA testing and I know that they do the testing on the hair follicle. Now, when this original testing was done, was that not um, discovered at that point in time that it was not his DNA on the hair follicle? Well, because it was in the early 1980s, and they didn't have DNA. DNA wasn't even around. Okay. So they hadn't even developed the DNA technology at that point. Okay. So that's how old this case is. This man has been in prison for over 30 years for a crime he didn't commit. This is the most absurd thing I think I've ever heard in my life. You're telling me a seven-year-old girl who's been traumatized picks out a photo and they find a hair and say, hey, we're going to lock this man up for the rest of his life. How in the world are you calling that any kind of cotton-picking justice? Especially when she's been medicated. And the first jury who heard this evidence refused to convict him. They hung. And he was originally charged with capital murder, meaning they were originally trying to convict him and sentence him to death. And that the second jury convicted him, but convicted him of a much lesser included crime of manslaughter. Um, you know, we in, in the uh, criminal defense world often call that kind of verdict a compromise verdict because, um, you know, it appears that the jurors sort of compromised on a much lesser crime because there were some that were, um, you know, concerned that perhaps he hadn't committed the crime. Um, that's me. I will, uh, you know, we we don't have the jurors saying that, but that's uh, when you have that kind of verdict when they're going for the death penalty and it comes back as manslaughter, that we suspect that that may have happened in the jury room. And I have a question again, Laura. I know that, you know, you're not supposed to have, like, uh, judge shopping. But to me, when you get a hung jury case, it seems like all they're doing is jury shopping for the next jury that will convict. What is your feelings on a hung jury? Because I believe that the the legal system needs to come to a place where if there's a hung jury, okay, I can see maybe maybe having one hearing after that, but when you consistently let the prosecutors just go on and on and on if there are many hung juries afterwards, I think it should be limited. What is your feeling on that? Well, um, I, you know, I'm in the criminal defense world and I have, um, I, you know, I would, I would agree that I, I wish that there was some limit in their ability to come and retry a person 
because I've been involved in cases where there were three and four trials of individuals. And, uh, you know, it, it's very concerning if, if jurors are, are listening to the evidence or say, and saying there's not enough for us to convict this person, then, you know, our system of justice says that they should not be convicted. And so how many times, how many bites at the apple are they allowed to have? Um, you know, at this point, there is no limit on that. So uh, they can continue on as many times as they would like. Now, Laura Lamont Banks here, uh, contributing mm-hmm. analyst. For just just a quick question for you: uh, uh, the testimony of the seven-year-old uh, was that allowed in the trial? Yes, and and by the time the trial occurred, I believe she was nine, and uh, they did have some hearings to, um, you know, to determine whether or not she should be allowed to testify. In these cases, you know, when you have when the only living real witnesses are children, um, oftentimes the courts allow the testimony of very young children in in those cases. Well, what concerns me is is that if uh, I mean they'll tell adults in in testimony that uh, before they testify, you do understand that uh, nobody's put you up to this. This is a choice that you make. You are allowed to do that. You're not under any uh, uh, influence of alcohol or drugs or medication at at the beginning of this testimony. That is something that the courts uh, seem to be very, very clear on. What's troubling about the situation to me is that you have, number one, a undeveloped mind, if you will, of a seven-year-old kid who has been traumatized to the point of, of horrific proportions, but you're dealing with and if I heard you correctly, was she in, you said ICU? Is that correct? Yes. When she, uh, so so the offense occurred on, and the following, that that when she, when she and her sister were discovered, they were taken to the emergency room. They underwent surgery, and she was in the, um, in the hospital recovering from that surgery, it was just the following day that they presented her with the first set of photos, which was a set of 10 photos. See, at that point, Laura, in my opinion, um, to be honest with you, at least the structure of the system being what they uh, perpetrate it to be, the case should have been thrown out for for misconduct. Mm-hmm. I mean that is that is a level of a high level of misconduct where you have a 7-year-old girl just coming out of surgery and because you're so bent on getting a case mm-hmm. this is uncomprehendable to me and why then is the judge I, I, held accountable for that yeah. for even a I would that? tell you I would tell you that I I had the same reaction because I'm looking at you know very young children and uh, you know, when you have these young children, they've just lost their mother and they are being presented uh, with all of these photos and people trying to get them to, um, you know, find the perpetrator. And, you know, the perpetrator, the child was telling the police that the perpetrator was a man by the name of Bill. Uh, my client's name is Rodney. Um, and 
they they just kept coming. It was April 28th, 10 photos. April 30th, 11. May 4th, 13. Uh, May 5th, they checked the children out of Goodall and drove them around to see if they recognized any area, that uh, a home that they were taken to. So they actually checked the children out of the hospital, put them in a car, and drive them around. And then take them, return them back to the hospital. Um, May 11th, they're shown 12 photos, and then May 21st, there they do a, a composite sketch. May 23rd, so it just kept going on and on and on until finally, the child, instead of 10, 11, 13 photos, is given two photos and told to look through the magic door and pick the bad guy. And my client is the one who's holding up a. Uh, is in an obvious police photo, and the other gentleman is in just like a regular photo. So she picks, you know, I mean, mean, if I can show that to anybody and say pick the bad guy, and they're going to pick the photo of my client every time. Well, what's um, because the it's, 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 it's a it's a bad photo lineup is what it is, and well, you know we have police procedure. Police should be following um, you know procedures with regard to eyewitness identification in order to to avoid um, you know the misidentification of people because this is such a big problem, particularly in these DNA cases when we have seventy two percent of them involving this type of misidentification. Well, my last point, uh, and, and to uh, chime in on that, Laura, is this. We're taught in elementary school mm-hmm. in books. You see the cop and you see the bad guy. You see somebody behind some bars and you see somebody on the right. corner selling. Kids automatically, at least as far as I can remember, uh, if if I said, who's the bad guy here? Well, I'm not going to point right. at the cop or the ice cream man. I'm going to point automatically to the if, – and if I heard you correctly in what you just said – you have a photo lineup, a man just kind of standing, doing nothing, not looking like he's apprehended in any way. But then you right. have your client in police right. custody in a picture. Is that correct? Right, with the, with the plaque in front of him. Wow. And that's why do yeah. the prosecutor should be held accountable for even trying to attempt to prosecute a case like that. That's unbelievable. Right. So, Laura, let's let's bring Kay uh, Lincoln in on on this conversation real quick. And uh, and and then we'll try and, and wrap this segment up. Uh, so, Kay, are you there? I am. Hello, so how are you? I'm here. How are you doing, Kay? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. So, you've been in this fight uh, to uh, get your get your dad exonerated for for many years now. So, uh, what from from a daughter's perspective? What uh, you know? How how what kind of challenges are you facing? Wow. Um. <laughs> You know, when I first began this fight, it was just a challenge just to get anyone to hear me, to listen and to believe, hey, there's an innocent man in prison here. Um, Did eventually get those people to listen, eventually got the Midwest Innocence Project involved, and since then, that challenge is still there, just trying to get people to hear you, to understand. Um, And you want to just scream sometimes from the rooftops, hey, is anybody listening? He's innocent. Um, Beyond that, just trying to get people to believe and understand what's happening here. Think of the family dynamics of 
when my father was arrested, I was 13. My younger sister was 10. My brothers were 14 and 16. Yeah, that's, those are all ages where you need your dad. You know, you, he really needs to be there and be a part of your life. Well, that's snatched away from you in an instant, not only taking him from us, but taking us from him. He lost more than we did. Now all four of those children are grandparents. Wow. 32 years. Yeah. All four of his children are grandparents. His 30. mother has passed away. His sister has passed away. His brother has passed away. Both of his sisters have lost siblings or lost spouses. One sister has lost children. His children have grown up, gotten married, graduated, had children, had grandchildren. That was all taken from him. He was robbed of every single one of those things, good and bad, for something he didn't do. Right. So, and, go ahead, Cliff. No, I was going to say, I'm looking at... Um, at your dad's story, it says in uh, January of 2010 that they came back and, and said that the the DNA is not his. The hair is not his. That was at the scene. Uh, they really have no evidence against him at this point except for this contrived, um, you know, testimony or picking him out of a lineup by a, um, a seven-year-old kid in a drug-induced stupor. Uh, in intensive care, if the if the DNA says that he was not at the crime scene, that there was someone else there, and, I mean, this came out in 2010, the thing that gets me, I mean, you have, uh, I, I read that the circuit attorney, uh, that his office opposed the motion, stating that that was not, that that evidence wasn't conclusive proof of innocence. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that they're supposed to prove you guilty without uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, sure, it's now, you know, on the defendants, uh, you know, basically their responsibility to prove innocence. But if you say this is the DNA that you convicted him on by saying that his hair is at the crime scene, it was him, he's the one who was there. And then you come back and say the evidence that you convicted him on is not true. It is completely the opposite of what you presented in court. And now you say that he has to prove his innocence when the evidence is a complete, a total lie. His conviction is based upon a lie or misfact, whatever you want to call it. What is what is going on with the circuit attorney's office? How are you guys pressuring, fighting, and pushing against the uh, the DA's office now to say, hey, you need to release Mr. Bronson. He's not He's not guilty. What What's going on with the fight right now? Well, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, and I completely, that's exactly my thought process. When we, you know, I've known since I was 13 years old my father was arrested. I've known he was innocent. But when we got that scientific proof proving, okay, this is what you used against him, this is what you're going to use to release him, this proves his innocence, we were just like elated. Finally, we got what we were looking for, and we thought that, you know, they would just take that into court, and the prosecutor would say, oh, you know what, you're right. Well, when they came back and said, no, that's, 
that's not good enough. That's not conclusive proof to us. We were just kind of dumbfounded. What do you mean? This is what you used against him. This is what you used to prove him guilty. It now proves him innocent, but now they've completely switched gears and say, oh, no, that hair was never important to us. It was not important to our case. We have this child's testimony. Which and, and can I can I jump in here real quick? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, because I just want to add because Kay's making you know she's been there and she knows this case as well as anybody. But I also want to add that we we did further DNA testing. After that, we tested every single one of the uh, knives that were involved in the attack. We tested all sorts of items from the crime scene, and we did all we tested all of those things. And, you know, his profile is nowhere there. So it's not just, you know, our position is the evidence that was used to convict him now proves his innocence. So how can you possibly keep him in prison when we have completely shown that your case was based on um misleading at, at best or false evidence at most because that that hair that they told the jury matched Rodney Lincoln did not does not match him. It is absolutely proven that it's not his. And that's what seems like it's so much uh, corruption and injustice in this system is is the fact that, okay, you're a prosecutor, but part of your job as being a prosecutor is to review the evidence, go forward, and if, and allow justice to take place. If that person is innocent, you're so hung up on getting a conviction and maintaining a conviction of an innocent life. Do what's right. Release the man. Right. That's. I think that is, uh, you know, so important. We There are mistakes that occur in our system of justice, and we need to be willing to correct those. There are, as of today, 1,467 cases on the National Exoneration, National Registry of Exonerations. Um, we know that mistakes occur. And so we should be willing to, once we know that a mistake has occurred, correct it. And that's mm-hmm. what we're asking. Is we've, we have this proof. Is we have scientific proof correct the mistake. Let's fix this mistake. And Rodney has been in there for 32 years. And Lord, it seems to me as you make the point of a mistake, uh, this this is starting to sound like deliberate misconduct. A mistake is something, well, you know, I didn't mean to do that. When you have evidence on the level that you're talking about mm-hmm. where DNA says, the, the prosecution says, well, we didn't really need that, but you put that in the mind of a juror that this gentleman's hair was there. Well, that affected the outcome of the trial. I don't think it's a mistake these days. I think our system is so broke, it is now deliberate misconduct going on and, and just corruption at its highest level. I think we need to call it what it is on that issue, on, the, on, that, on that front. And uh, Professor O'Sullivan, this is Cliff Stewart again. Um, as we wrap this segment up, uh, we just wanted to ask you, um, as far as in in your uh, background and some of your experiences, uh, we just wanted to ask what has been your um, your take on Attorney Mark Garagos. You know, we've had 
some issues with him. Uh, we see him in the in the public eye all the time. We have come to find out that you know he's a uh, man of of different clothes. That he wears one in front of the cameras, and he wears another uh, in front of his his clients when uh, when the cameras aren't on. He's not standing in front of the judge. Wanted to get your take on that. See if you've had any experience as we kind of transition back to that that conversation. Let's we'll give you a chance to make a comment on that. I I don't have any uh, experience or comment to make about uh, Mr. Garagos. What I will tell you is. You know, my organization that I work with, the Midwest Innocence Project, is a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to investigating wrongful convictions. We do that based on donations, and we're part of a national innocence project network. And so, you know, when when I think about people reaching out to get help, I would just encourage them to do due diligence and to, you know, make sure that whoever they're hiring, they're hiring, they know what their goal is, the person they're hiring, and that they know um, basically where their money's going to go and what the what they hope the outcome will be and, and so that they're on the same page. Um, but, you know, I mean, we look at cases where ineffective assistance of counsel is involved as well. That's another thing that ha- where innocent people get wrongfully convicted. And so it's a, it's a problem uh, that we deal with quite frequently. Excellent advice. Thank you very much. All right, Laura O'Sullivan okay. and Kay Lincoln, thank you for joining us and uh, sharing information about uh, Rodney's case. And folks can uh, go to our website and get more information about uh, Rodney uh, Lincoln's case. And we will have a link posted out there on ajcradio.com ajcradio.com again thank you both for joining us uh so we're going to shift gears back to uh, what we were talking about uh, cliff before uh, that segment and how um you, how we just got a letter in from the california bar regarding our complaint against mr garagos now i, I like the way uh attorney o'sullivan uh, just kind of said you know uh, that they that she's part of a, a non-profit organization and you know it's always good when we have and, and we had on just before that segment we had on mr bronson and mr bronson was uh, ed bronson he was sharing his personal experience uh of how this happened to him during the scott peterson case and so we want to bring mr bronson back on and allow him to to uh, elaborate a little bit more on uh that that particular uh, situation and how, you know, he was not paid for services that he was contracted to do. And so it seems like it just boils down to a thing that uh, it's all about the dollar. Mr. Bronson, are you there? I'm still here. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for hanging out with us. So, you know, when we, when we jumped to the other segment, we were, uh, you were talking about uh, how things were going in, in trial uh, when, when you were uh, trying to uh, – to, to, to get paid, and, and and then you were basically having to go up against uh, Mr. Garagos in, in court to get paid for, for monies that were due you. So if you could pick up from that point. Well, uh, it simply was that when Mr. Garagos came in and uh, said what he said, uh, lied about what happened, uh, and I didn't, uh, and perhaps I was wrong not to, uh, tell the court that Mr. Gergos was lying. Uh, 
the court, uh, since the burden of proof was on me, uh, that uh, the court uh, overturned the verdict that I'd won. So I ended up not not winning. But as far as the Scott Peterson case went, uh, uh, as I may have indicated, I think Mr. Garrigus ultimately will have saved uh, uh, Scott Peterson's life because he committed some of the most obvious uh, uh, bad lawyering that anybody could do, and it may work to Scott Peterson's advantage. I, I don't know if you want to hear about that, yeah. but yeah. well, he did two things. If, and I don't know if you remember the trial, uh, but it was nationally broadcast, so everybody saw it. Uh, in his opening statement, uh, Mr. Garriga said that he would produce the real killer to the jury so they would know who was the real killer, and it wasn't Scott Peterson. Well, of course, he never even attempted to introduce that sort of evidence, and uh, I don't think there's any question but that uh, any juror on that uh, who had been promised that not only would uh, uh, Mr. Garrigus uh, prove that Scott Peterson wasn't guilty, but he would introduce the real killer. But of course, when he didn't do that, that uh, he, he he must have lost all credibility with the jury. The other thing is that Mr. Garrison he said this that he never you know in a death penalty case there are two trials. The first one is to decide if the defendant is guilty of murder, and then only if the defendant is convicted of first degree murder. Uh, under certain special circumstances, you go to a second trial, and that trial decides whether the uh, convicted killer should get the death penalty or life without the possibility of parole. And uh, Mr. Garagas, apparently, and it's what he said, he was so sure he'd win the guilt phase, that is that they'd never even get to the penalty phase, that he didn't prepare for the penalty phase. And in fact, uh, he didn't even use the evidence that he had that might have helped during the penalty phase. That is something I I know about. And uh, so Mr. Peterson got the death penalty. Mm -hmm. Well, if you can really show in court down the line, maybe many years later, that um, you ha the attorney has committed what's called IAC, that stands for ineffective assistance of counsel. If you can really show that, that he didn't perform up to professional norms and that it was operated to the prejudice of the defendant, then the defendant uh, can, can get his trial overturned. And it looks like, we'll see what the court decides down the line, it looks like uh, Mr. Garrigus did that. And uh, so ultimately, uh, only by being very bad did he uh, maybe accomplish a good thing to at least save uh, Scott Peterson's life, even though he will have been on death row for 25 years or more. And, you know, Mr. Bronson, to uh, your comment uh, about the uh, preparing for the um, – the sentencing or the conviction, uh, there's even there was even a, a news clip uh, on ABC News at the time where a legal analyst, uh, Manuel Madreno, 
uh, he he actually said that uh, that Mr. Garagos made a few critical errors. And like you said, he said, for example, he said that he was astounded when during the closing arguments in the penalty phase, he essentially admitted that he hadn't prepared for this part of the trial because he didn't expect a conviction. The question That's just is what I that, said. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, and so I mean, you you had a front row seat to all of that. <laughs> it was quite remarkable, um, because I I knew who worked on that penalty phase of the case, and I know that Mr. Garagas never used the evidence that that um, he had produced. So it was just almost pathetic for a skilled attorney. It is pathetic, and I wouldn't call him a skilled attorney. I would just call him an attorney with a name and not an effective advocate. Well, there have been some cases, and I don't know all the details, but he's taken on some uh, some real minority defendants, people who had no power, um, racial minorities and ethnic minorities and others, and uh, has won some cases for them. And I think... If if I had to conclude, I'd say that Mr. Garagos is very skilled on his feet, but he's either lazy or incompetent. So when it takes some research or some preparation, that that's not one of his uh, one of his strengths. But I I don't I wanna... speak as an expert here, just as uh, a a general opinion. And Mr. Bronson, I want to. Uh... Um, agree with you there on his incompetence and his laziness because we have experienced that with the IRP case and I just want to let you know that I agree with you in that in that essence. Well, I wish I had more information. I can't comment. I mean, I'm, I'll accept what, what you said is true, though I don't know and I can't certainly can't speak as an, as an expert. I can only speak on the facts that I really uh, know about. Well, I think one point, Sam uh, and, and Mr. Bronson, to look at here, and, and this is the, uh, if you will, the institutionalization, if you will, of our country when it comes to lawyers. If you get to a point and you get to the ranks and as being an attorney, uh, as Mr. Garagos is, uh, as, or what he has achieved, however, whenever you feel like that, I don't even think this is going beyond the, the uh, that this is going to be a guilty verdict. Number one, juries are very unpredictable, so you don't know what they're going to come back with. The That's fact for that, sure. So the fact that he didn't prepare, my understanding is, and I'm not a lawyer, but the attorneys that I have dealt with, is that they prepare for the worst. And they of hope course. The they prepare for every scenario possible uh, because you just don't know what a jury. And the fact that Mr. Garagos has been, has been in this industry for over 30 years, this is information he has to be aware of, and I believe that's what's troubling to the to the folks, uh, to us, and also probably the audience tonight is that you're not talking about somebody that I mean, you got people coming straight out of law school that know the basics. I'm, sh I'm sure you've heard that in a sports analogy. Stick to the basics. Sure. The basics sure. are that you prepare for any scenario or any situation that's going on. You have to prepare for, and and that's very troubling. Uh, given Mr. Garagos' uh, experience and his experience in law, which makes him even that much more inexcusable. Much more so. And it's just basic. It's elementary. If you do a death penalty case, there are two trials, and you prepare for two trials. And, in yes. fact, 
around the country, you usually have in death penalty cases, often at least you will have separate lawyers, one of whom prepares for the guilt phase, whether or not the defendant is guilty, and then another if you get to the penalty phase, because that involves interviewing the family and a whole bunch of other people and and investigating things to show that even though he may be guilty of the crime, that there are certain mitigating factors or factors that uh, should perhaps uh, operate to to convince the jury to extend sympathy to the, to the defendant. And so you prepare for that as much as you prepare for the guilt phase. Absolutely. And we have a uh, caller on the line. Uh, Ethel, you have a question or comment concerning this issue? Absolutely. And I wanted to also say um, you guys are doing such an awesome job. This is a really, really, really great show. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, let me make a comment as well. Um, I, I was listening to the gentleman talking just now, and he was talking about Mark Garagos being lazy and, and incompetent. I mean, besides being lazy and incompetent, Mark Garagos is also a liar and the worst kind of thief. When you can take $100,000 from families who are struggling with their spouses being in prison, they've got kids that they're trying to take care of, and you can take $100,000 from these families, you are the worst kind of thief there is. Now, your organization has uh, pro bono services. Now, Susan McDougal, he represented Susan McDougal. Susan McDougal had money. I mean, she, was, she, was, she went to prison because she would not uh, uh, speak about what the Clintons did. The Clintons were very good friends of hers. The Clintons had money. If they want, I mean, they could have paid for, for, for her, for her uh, legal services. But he represented this woman pro bono, and when you guys talked to him about representing the IRP6 and, and discussed their families and how they stood and that the money, they really didn't have the money, but he went ahead and charged $50,000 for the first part and another $50,000 on top of that, $1,000 for a kind of thinking, uh, counseling for an hour in which he was late getting to, this man is the worst kind of thief, and he does need to be brought out and shown for who he is. Thank you so much for taking my comment. Thank you. We appreciate the call. Uh, Ed, and I'll would you just like add to- one comment. How somebody could take... Um, the Michael Jackson case, and then at the very same time take the Scott Peterson case and represent both of them, that, uh, that's just incredible. I never can't imagine anything like that. Either one of those cases would have been more than a full-time job. And, you know, uh, on that point, uh, Cliff, I think one of the things you mentioned earlier also was even in trying to get a meeting scheduled uh, for the IRP-6. IRP-6 always took second, third, fourth, fifth uh, fiddle, so to speak. You start off the week by by saying, okay, can we schedule a call for Monday? Then it gets pushed to Tuesday. Then it ultimately always ended up on a Sunday, and it even got to the point to where his uh, administrative assistant, Alice, uh, uh, said directly to us, uh, you know, I am so sorry about this happening. And and there were times when we would literally, we would make ourselves available to yes. do a call at any time. It was always an excuse that, well, he's in trial. He says he's going to call you when he gets out. 
or he's doing something, and we would make ourselves available standing by the phone until the evening, and it wouldn't happen. And when you have your administrative assistant apologizing on your behalf, I think you, you mentioned it earlier, Lamont, it's a character flaw. There is a problem there, and it sounds like even with you, Mr. Bronson, and, and, and uh, in the dealings of not getting paid for your services, uh, it's, and then taking money from people like the IRP6 and God knows whoever else. And I think, Lisa, we probably have a couple of other comments from, uh, that were posted online where he's done this kind of thing before. And uh, before you go to that, Lisa, I would just like to say, you know, to, to your point, Sam, you know, of us taking – ensuring that we were available for uh, for for any conference call that uh Mark Garrigal asked for. There were times when we were out, uh, you know, we we visit the IRP six every Saturday. There were times that we were at the prison visiting, had a call scheduled with him, would would come out and if anyone has gone to visit at a uh, at a federal federal prison complex, it's typically once you go in if you go back out, your 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 visit is over with with that with that prison. Your visit is over with that inmate. You go in, you come back out. That's it. They typically don't let you come back in to say, okay, well, I went outside and I had to do this or that. Well, there were times, uh, at least once, that that uh, Sam and I were at Florence Federal Prison visiting IRP six. Said we got to go outside, take this call. With attorney Mark Garrigals and uh, the guys at that point were saying, "Okay, hey, you know, he's 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 got you guys, you know, you got a schedule with him. We're ecstatic that he's gonna uh, that he we we finally got in touch with him and he's gonna keep his his uh, his appointment. We get outside, try to make the call with him, and what's the response? Oh, he's on an airplane. <laughs> we told you that it would be in the middle of visiting, and so please keep." The uh, please keep the appointment so that we can have the information that you tell us to give back to the IRP six the next time we saw him or via email after after the conference call. He's not available, and I'll, and, and Alice again would say, "Well, let me try to see where he's at." And and the thing with him being on a plane is like, come on, you don't keep scheduling appointments and then you're on a plane, and then ten minutes later after, well, he's on a plane, we get an email from him. Oh well, let's let's schedule to uh, take the call in an hour or two. It was totally ridiculous, but we always put ourselves out there to say, yes, we're available based on your schedule. We understand you're busy. Tell us when, and we'll show up. And we still got put. We still got stood up. We still, like you said, Sam, just got put on the back burner. So I just wanted to add that piece in there. Go go ahead, Lisa. You had some uh, some information. Yeah, I got a couple more reviews about Mark Garagos here. We have, uh, I mean, people who had hired him. We have one person here who said that he, he was not trustworthy, he was not responsive, he was not knowledgeable, and he did not keep him informed. He said, I do not recommend Mark Garagos. He handled my criminal defense matter, and I would never recommend him to anyone. We have another one who said, don't hire him. Took 25000 in cash and didn't even bother to show. I do not recommend Mark Garagos. He handled my criminal defense matter. Uh, I paid him $25,000 in cash, and he never showed up in court. He sent his partner, Pat Harris. I paid you to be my lawyer, is a quote from this person. I will be filing a state bar complaint and advise others to do so as well. He is a highly unethical lawyer. I mean, the uh, it, you're not going to have 
there's too many people saying that this man is doing a poor job to say that he is some great uh, attorney. This is not a great attorney. This is a sorry, lousy, good-for-nothing attorney who has a name for himself that says he does something that he doesn't do. So, Mr. Bronson, did you have uh, any knowledge of or work with uh, the former FBI agent Carl um, Carl Jensen, who also worked on the on the Scott Peterson case? No. Okay. Yeah, because that's another one, Lisa, that was uh, associated with that particular case, where I guess uh, this retired uh, FBI agent helped in the in the uh, Scott Peterson case, and he ended up having to sue. Gary goes for uh, uh, underpayment of uh, about $35,000 for work that he did. Yeah, and the private he did private investigation work and did not get he did not get his money either. Got a portion of it but not all of it. So let me ask you something Mr. Bronson, uh in, in with the fact that <laughs> with the fact that you uh brought a lawsuit against uh, Mark Garagos and you've been, you know, in the in the news about this, you know, over the years you've been willing to talk about it. Has it impacted your business or did it impact your business as a consultant uh in any way uh after after that situation? Not that I can think of. Uh I'm sort of uh the guy who does this and uh, they people call me and I've been doing it for I think I did my first case. I testified for the first time in 1970, so I've been doing it for quite a while. I'm 84 years old now, so I'm just an old, uh, foggy college professor that uh, has had some reasonable success over the years. And Mr. Bronson, uh, I was reading a, a article about your um, your dealings with Mark Garagos concerning the uh, the Peterson case. And it said that um, you know basically the the issues that came up with uh, Garagos's firm and the way that he treated you and the way that things came about that it um, it prevented you from accepting ABC commentary work on the Peterson case, which you know uh, we all know it spawned uh, many books, many made for TV movies and things of that nature. Talk to us about what happened there and how it, it, it prevented you basically from gaining capital as a consultant? Well, I, I have, I'm a full-time college professor and uh, I had m- way more cases than I can handle because I'm, uh, I, I get a lot of cases. People call me. I've been doing it so long that every, sort of everybody around the country knows me. As I said, I just did the Boston marathon bombing case and I, no shortage so i don't think it and the money was never the issue i i'm not uh, worried about uh, the money it was the the disrespect the uh, the lack of professionalism uh, the just the it 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 was totally unnecessary all he had to do was call me and say hey ed uh, uh, I've decided to hire somebody else. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry that it all fell through, and that would have been the end of it. But he not only never told me, and went ahead with somebody else. And by the way, uh, there was a national scandal over what he did in connection with it, with the guy who did the surveys. Uh, b- 
but uh, he he never had the decency, and then he never even acknowledged, at least initially, uh, my letters of what's going on, and he was just a, a pretty sleazy kind of guy, and uh, I felt I had to sue. Absolutely. I was not happy about that, but uh, that's what I did. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do. And we have a, a caller on the line. Uh, we have the truth. You have a comment or question? Yes, I'm listening to the professor tonight, and I want to commend him for something that you rarely hear say, uh, rarely hear any lawyer say that it wasn't about the money. I think it was about principle. Uh, and whether or not we are honest and people of integrity. I think when money becomes the reason we do anything, we never really succeed at it well. I think that when you do something, uh, you have a purpose and you understand what that purpose is, and you work toward the purpose alone in fulfilling what that purpose is, is the thing that gives you uh, this sense of reward and joy in what you're doing. I think too many people get involved in certain careers or whatever just because it's a lot of money involved. But every time he said tonight, it really wasn't about the money. Uh, I have such an appreciation and such a respect for that in a way that I don't, I can't even find the words to explain it. And 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 you're the type of lawyer, my God, I wish we'd have got you. I wish we could have known who you were. Because rarely do I have I heard an attorney say it's not about the money. Now, Mark Gallagher told, told our family the same thing because I'm the mother of, of one of the IRP6 and the, and the pastor of all of them. But I think it just makes you have this sense that if money is not the motivating factor, you just seem to do a better job. When you really care about people, when you care about justice, and I heard him on CNN talk about how the justice system was unfair and prejudicial and, 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 prejudicial and all these things that, that's, that's wrong with the system. I thought, gosh, I haven't heard that from an attorney uh, to really just come open and say it was unjust, uh, unjust and that you had, uh, it was really racially biased and all these things. I was surprised. But you know what? Because you have an image does not mean we got real substance. Anybody can create an image. But when we have substance and integrity and we love what we do, we went to law school for the simple fact that I want to help somebody. That I, those people that cannot speak for themselves, I want to educate myself enough that I can help somebody. And the reward of helping outweighs any amount of money you can get if that's what your purpose and your goal is. Not that I might become a multimillionaire, but in the process, if that happens, well and good. But that's not what I went to law school for. So you ought to be commended. I just feel overwhelmed tonight to see that there's really... A real attorney out there, and I'm not saying they're, all, they're not some good attorneys. We just have a hard time finding them. 
But thank God for a person as yourself with such integrity and caring about people. And it's evident in your voice and the way you talk. Your passion is evident that I am passionate about justice. I'm passionate about helping people that can't help themselves. Well, if we had more attorneys like you, what difference would it make with how many people are incarcerated that should not be in prison today? Thank you so much for being a part of this show. You have made my evening. I wish we could give you hour upon hour, and I know that's not possible, but just to hear the truth and the concern for people means everything. Thank you so much. Well, I don't know that I deserve all that, but it's awfully nice to hear you say it anyway. Thank you. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it, it. you do deserve it. When a person is honest, a person of integrity, They uh, because we don't see it so often, it, it's so seldom that you see a person who steps up and says, you know what, I'm going to be honest and I and I prove that. I'm going to be a person of integrity and so it needs to be said just just like uh you know we try to expose uh injustices when we see something done right it's not beyond us to say hey here's someone that's doing it right but it's so far and in between so we we have to commend you uh for doing that and and so professor give us a little bit of you know what are you what are you working on now what who's uh who do you who's in the in the spotlight right now with uh with the cases that you're handling well um of course the the Boston Marathon case is going on uh, but mm. my role is uh, probably over um but i've got four or five others that are going on uh uh, at least three of them involving uh, the death penalty. Uh, and my role is not to get somebody who's guilty off. I don't do that. But I do try to get where it's something that I have done a bit of research on or know something about. It's to help them get a, a fair trial. Uh, and that may mean a lot of different issues that over all these years I've I've been working on. And then I also have uh, a a local program at my university where my students are uh, are helping uh, work with low-income people on things like uh, fair housing, non-discrimination, uh, welfare rights, uh, uh, family law, so they aren't charged exorbitant amounts to help them get divorces and things, environmental law. We've got 12 different programs at the university that uh, uh, my undergraduate students are working on. And I'm thrilled about that, that that program's been going on. Uh, We're next year celebrating our 45th anniversary that that's continued. I've been able to hire back my former students who've gone off to law school and are now teaching at my university. So that's the stuff that really does lead to satisfaction, just as your uh, caller was um, was saying, a lot more than having more money. Excellent. Um, with the, 
the information that I don't know how much of the IRP6 case that you were able to go over. Um, we wanted to get your take on that, um, some of the things that you uh, may have seen, some of the things that you may have read. We wanted to kind of get your take on um, if you had a chance to review that on uh, the case and its happenings. Now, like we said, you know, uh, Mark Garagos represented the IRP6 very poorly in their yeah. uh, post-conviction efforts. Um, we had a, uh, uh, a an appeal effort that uh, he was supposed to take part in um, that, you know, he basically dropped the ball on. And so you have – here you have six defendants that, um, you know, basically had a Fifth Amendment violation that, you know, the judge, Judge Christine Arguello, called a sidebar, told them that if they did not take the stand uh, since – um, you know, some of their witnesses weren't available, not by any fault of their own. The prosecutor had ended his case in chief about a week and a half early. Uh, their their witnesses were coming out of town from mostly the eastern seaboard. So you have the judge, Arguello, calls a sidebar conference, tells them, well, since your uh, witnesses aren't here, we're not going to wait for another uh, 40 minutes for a witness to get here. Either one of you are going to take the stand or I'll, I will rest your case for you. We have that issue, which is which is huge. I mean, you're talking about a constitutional violation against self-incrimination. You're also talking about a speedy trial act where the uh, the same judge, Arguello, went far outside the realms of the speedy uh, trial clock uh, during this case. And you also have where she has expert witnesses that she actually pulled off the, off the stand once they were sworn in identified themselves the the defendants were um trying to vet them as as uh expert witnesses the prosecutor objected and the witness was actually taken off the stand in the presence of the jury and never uh had it explained to them why he was not able to testify these are the type of things that you have in the IRP6 case and that were before Mark Garagos, and you know, you heard the clip earlier where he said he hadn't seen anything like this in his 31 years of of uh, practice, and yet he still did not do what he needed to do to represent them. He still took over a hundred thousand dollars from the families of these men, and gave back absolutely nothing except, you know, he gave he gave Sam a good cussing out. <laughs> he. Uh, <laughs> He gave us he gave us a lot of lies and really nothing of substance uh in the way of of um you know um attorney assistance. Uh what are you what are you uh just as your, your final thoughts on that in a case such as that with the information I give you, what do you find I mean, what can you say to something like that, uh in the in the legal profession? Uh, supposed to be an, a, a defense attorney who gets up on national television constantly and says, hey, you know, the, the system is against the little man, the system is against minority, uh, the system is against uh, people um, who don't have economic means, and puts up this front, this this cloak of deception that that is what he's about, about taking care of the little man, and yet he does nothing to really protect them. In the end, the people that you see him representing, that you see him on television with, is not the family such as a Trayvon Martin or a Michael Brown or a a minority of, uh, you know, not famous means, but you do see him on, uh, you know, basically behind the podium on a political stage with Chris Brown, 
uh, with other, you know, really quote unquote um, high target celebrities that he does that he does represent. What, what's your take on uh, on that type of um, of activity by Mark Yarrow? Well, clearly, to the extent that you've described accurately what's happened here, and I have no reason. I, I, obviously, I don't know any more than what you've told me. Uh, clearly, that's very, very troubling and is not uh, entirely inconsistent with my own uh, limited experience with uh, what uh, what he does when he's really fighting the fight. Uh, I don't know what else to say, and it's not the whole experience is not entirely inconsistent with other cases that I've had to deal with over the years where uh, various defendants have uh, had uh, most unfortunate experiences and unfair experiences in the court. Uh, Judges often have their own uh, agenda. Many judges are wonderful and fair, and many defense attorneys are, I've certainly work with many, many wonderful uh, defense attorneys who uh, did everything and then some to uh, protect their clients. But they're not all at that level, and um, uh, Mr. Gerges has, at least in in my experience, has not been one of those that uh, would fall into that uh, top Draw at least consistently. Some of the cases, for whatever reason, he may do a great job with. But uh, uh, given what he charges uh, and uh, and what he apparently sometimes does, uh, he may not fall into that uh, that class. Mr. Bronson, I have a question uh, along the lines of, of, and you mentioned the uh, Boston Marathon case. And I know that you have testified as an expert uh, witness in that case. And and uh, some some of the testimony in that situation, uh, uh, you, you, you talked about an overwhelming presumption of guilt and, <clears throat> and prejudgment uh, against the defendants there. And so with your expertise on uh, on publicity and juror behavior, um, and I'm, I'm kind of reflecting back on the IRP six case, and, and like you said, you know, you, you you haven't had a chance to really dive into it. But we had a situation with the IRP six where the judge, Judge Christine Arguello, uh, after the after the uh, conviction was was announced, she you know said to the jury, you know, thank you for your service. Uh, but even before that, there were several motions. There were several things that happened. I think Cliff may have talked about it where an expert witness was on the stand, was dismissed in front of the jury, was not allowed to testify. Fifth Amendment violation occurred. There were several things that occurred. In your experience, how does that kind of thing taint a, a jury? I mean, you know, you, you're sitting there as a jury and all this thing, all these things are unfolding in front of you. Plus, you have the the uh, defendants or pro se uh, uh, defendants who they did a, a outstanding job defending themselves, but when the judge allows the prosecutor to always you know throw these little darts in there and then the judge leans more toward the prosecution, what kind of signal does that send to to a jury? Clearly, to the extent that that happens, obviously I don't know how much it happened in your case. It, it it, it's very unfair and very prejudicial. And in fact, to for a 
I was just reading a case today where the allegation was that the judge treated the defense attorney with disrespect, and while the, the appellate court held that it wasn't proved in that case, that it was very clear that the rule is that if if the prosecutor does that, that that can be grounds for overturning the conviction. And to the extent it happened, if it happened in your case, that uh, that's very unfair and does exactly what you say it does. It create once the judge shows that he doesn't believe the uh, the defendants and disrespects them and uh, doesn't respect uh, respect them as uh, either if they're acting as lawyers uh, in the case defending themselves that obviously is is very uh, uh, very prejudicial and wrong and have you ever been in a situation where a judge says in open court to the jury thank you for your service you may now go back to the jury room and, and you'll, you're free to go. But uh, I want you to stay in the jury room for a moment because I want to come in and have a personal word with you. And the strangest thing happened in this case is that after that occurred, none of the jurors would speak with anyone about the case. Uh, and, and eventually a couple of the jurors did speak to a, a person who was doing you know, post-trial analysis and and this part, these jurors made comments that the judge uh, had informed them that if anyone asked them anything about the or if anyone contacted them from the defense side about this case, for them to call the U.S. Attorney's Office, for them to call Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Kirsch. And in one instance, they were even told uh, that if anyone contacts you again to call the FBI and the, and the FBI would take care of it. Have you ever heard of anything like that? That's obviously extreme. Um, they may very well be told they don't have to speak to the defense or the prosecution, or that uh, if they have any questions about it, to call the court. But what you describe seems awfully extreme. This was in federal court or state court? Uh, this was in federal court. Federal court. Most unusual. And, and along that line, I, I believe, Cliff, correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't there a couple of sealed documents or something like that filed with the court uh, pertaining to something related to this? Yes, there's like a couple motions that were, um, whatever this means, level three sealed motions by the, the prosecutor. And when the uh, defense attorney requested from Judge Arguello to say, hey, you know, uh, what are these sealed motions? We request that you unseal them. What are they are they about? Judge Arguello uh, turned, turned down those motions. And so those records to this date are sealed. And you're talking about uh, motions that were filed by the prosecutor that the defense team has never seen and doesn't have any clue about uh what those what those motions contain and everybody we've talked to about it says you know they've never heard of a level three seal on a motion or a judge um keeping one side of the of the you know trial one party of the trial basically in the dark about what the other side is filing it it's most unusual to us and we really don't know what to make of it uh haven't found any uh, attorney or any other uh, legal person that's been able 
to give us an answer on what exactly is a level a level three sealed document. Well, I'm I'm no uh, uh, expert on on I don't I've never heard of a level three motion uh, that doesn't. But then I'm I'm not a practicing attorney. I'm while I have a lot of legal background, I'm I'm not uh, a lawyer. I'm a so-called expert. Uh, but not an expert on on everything lawyers do. I mean, I've got like three law degrees, but that doesn't mean that I know all the uh, all the uh, stuff that uh, can go on in court. It certainly sounds most peculiar for the court not to even give you a clue or to explain the basis for uh, denying any access to you at all. And the and uh we've had uh Judge H. Lee Sarakin, um, who was a retired federal judge, retired appellate uh judge, and, and he basically has the same comment that, you know, his what is a level three sealed motion and how do you have a court document that one one side cannot see it. It makes it makes no sense to, to us and, and uh just like you just said, everybody that we asked about said I've never heard of a level three uh, motion. What is that, and how is it that the court um, keeps it sealed? And how do you go about finding out what it is? Every request made to the judge comes back saying, "Hey, it's denied. I'm not telling you what this is. I'm not telling you what the other side filed, uh, but I I granted it. Whatever it is, that that to me uh, seems totally bizarre. And uh, you know, we don't know what to make of it. We'll we'll keep trying, keep trying to figure out, you know, what exactly is a level three motion? Why is it sealed? And how is it that you get it unsealed? Why is it that the defense cannot see uh, everything that the prosecutor is doing? It's total, totally bizarre. Has so, a, 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 an appellate court looked at that, at your case yet? Yes, yes, an appellate court has looked at the case, um, but what we find is that here, at least in the Tenth Circuit, the appellate court, and I guess mostly, um, pretty much all appellate courts are, you know, put in place to uphold the convictions, affirm the the decisions of the uh, of the of the civil court of the uh, not the civil court but the circuit court. So that's the kind of been the, court. right. The that's kind of court, been the yeah. case here. Exactly the district court. I'm sorry. That uh, tends to be the pattern, but usually something as unusual as this, they, one would hope they'd at least explain it, even if they didn't force the court to uh, reveal on the record what the basis for the decision was. But I, yeah. I wouldn't be opining as an expert on on procedural uh, matters of this sort. Right, and uh, and we wouldn't we wouldn't ask you to do that. We're just we're just trying to get any opinion on what exactly <laughs> what exactly this is. It is a level three uh, sealed motion. So uh, your your opinion is as good as the next, and uh, unfortunately we get the same answer. So we'll continue down that path, trying to figure out what exactly is going on. Well, I wish you good luck, and I hope to be able to follow this. Thank develops. you. And how, how can folks how can folks get in contact with you if, if you know if they need your consulting services or just want to you know uh, tap into some of your knowledge? You have? Well, um, they can I, they can email me. I suppose it's, uh, I don't know that I can respond. Depending on how many inquiries I get, I already get an awful lot from attorneys. 
uh, it's usually attorneys who consult with me, not uh, just uh, folks who uh, are interested. I'm I'm almost 85, so I don't do as much as I used to. Although I've got four or five cases going on uh, right now. Wow. So. Well, we certainly, we certainly appreciate you staying with us this evening and, and sharing uh, your experiences uh, with Attorney Garagos and and then just uh, and then elaborating on some of the other uh, cases that you work on and, and how those uh, those types of situations can can impact a case. So, again, Ed Brownstone, we thank you for joining us and uh, appreciate uh, uh, all the information you shared with us. Have a great evening. Thank you. Thank you. Good luck to all of you. Thank you. So, Cliff, Lamont, Lisa, we're coming to the end of another uh, uh, segment. So, Lisa, I guess uh, let's go on and start wrapping things up and give out the, the thank you, thank yous, and so forth. Yeah, we just want to... We just want to thank Olivia for her hard work. We also want to thank Miss Barbara for working behind the scenes, making sure that everything runs smooth and forth. We appreciate you guys for all that you do. Yes. I want to say thank you to everyone that called in their questions and comments. Thank you to everyone in the chat room. Thank you for our guests, Professor Ed Bronson, Professor Laurel Sullivan, and Kay Link. Thank you for spending time your, uh, this evening, spending your time this evening to uh, spend with us. We also want to say thank you to uh, K&D Productions, Captain Kyle and Dustin Jackson, helping out Ill Skills Girl in Control Room. Without them, you would not hear what it is that we have to say. To our production support team, we want to say thank you for the accurate, up-to-date information that you give us that we may provide to the public and to the truth. We know you're out there. We appreciate it. And Attorney Gwendolyn Solomon, the appellate attorney for the IRP6, was in studio with us this evening and sharing her thoughts uh, on the IRP6 case as well as the complaint that we filed against attorney Mark Garagos. And, you know, just as a quick recap, we did get uh, a response back from the State Bar of California. And so, those, you know, those are some of the things that we talked about earlier in the program as to how he lied in the in the responses to the bar. So now we're going to go back and say, no, it, it wasn't like that at all. And so, we, you know, we have all the facts, like you said, but we have all the facts to, to show that uh, there were not hundreds of emails. There were not dozens of phone calls. And so, you know, we still have that in front of us. But in the meantime, we ask that you would continue to pray for the IRP-6. That's David Banks, Dave Zappolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, Demetrius Harper, and Gary Walker. For more information about the IRP-6, go to freetheirp6.org. For more information about a just cause, go to a-justcause.com. We're also seeking contributions, so please click on the donate button. For archives of our program, go to AJCRadio.com. You can also go to Live365.com for 24 by 7 AJC and IRP programming. Yes, if you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. And every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. Eastern Time, you can catch us on Progressive Radio Network. Get there by going to PRN.FM. Again, that's on Progressive Radio Network. Cliff, as far as uh, I know we put out an appeal from time to time to the jurors, uh, in the IRP6 case, and we just talked briefly about that, but what are we asking the jurors in that case? That's right. Any jurors that are listening in, we ask you, since you hear on this show things that you did not hear during the court proceedings, uh, information that we've learned after the conclusion of the court process, uh, we have uh, truth and evidence that you were not allowed to see. We have letters from expert witnesses that the judge did not give you the opportunity to look at. 
If you would like to get information, contact us at 855-529-4252 or send us an email at contact at a-justcall.com. Join us each Tuesday and Thursday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time right here on Block Talk Radio as we bring you more information about uh, judicial injustice education and awareness and you know one of the things like we mentioned before is especially like in the program tonight where uh you know we have to expose wrong when when it occurs and uh regardless of what level it occurs regardless of who is involved we have to expose it because like in this situation you know that there's some other people out there like lisa was sharing so join us next time right here on just cause coast to coast where we bring you education awareness and information about judicial injustice Good night, America. Good night. Good night.